0: So Ash Wednesday is this week, so make sure you got that on your calendars. Our youth will be serving a meal uh, that is, uh, or preparing a meal. The meal starts at 6, 7th and 8th graders can eat at about 5.30 because they will now have classes uh, during Lent on Wednesdays, kind of like what we did during Advent, okay? So remember for Ash Wednesday, I have to explain this every year. Um, I didn't grow up with getting ashed, as I call it. you know, with, with the ashes. That was kind of a, a new thing, but as I got older and traveled around, I found there were a lot of Lutheran churches that actually have done it for a long time, so it's not really a new thing within Lutheranism. Um, in the back of the newsletter, there was an excerpt that I think Juanita pulled from the LCMS Commission on Worship, and there was something in the very last paragraph that I, I don't agree with that, I need, to, that I, need to, I need to warn you about. Okay, The last paragraph in the newsletter said something like, you know, we wear our ashes to go show everybody, you know, what we believe and our penitence. Don't wear ashes for that reason. Uh, that, 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 that is totally improper. Um, you know, ashes are, are not to be done as part of an outward show, okay? Um, remember, we have the passage that, that Jesus talks about washing your face and being clean and wearing a smile, you know. So during Lent, even though it's a meditative time of year, you should be happy the reason that we do the ashes and offer them, and I want to make sure you know that you are, you are free in the gospel. I'm going to use that very trite phrase. Don't get them if you're uncomfortable. It's okay. Um, the ashes remind us of our sinful nature. And they remind us of Genesis 3.15. Of this very body that we live in, from dust we are and to dust we shall return. Right? That's the curse. But we make the ashes in the sign of a cross for two reasons one this very body this body that's gotten a little larger in certain places and is getting older and creakier the Lord has redeemed with his holy precious blood and his innocent suffering and death right and this body one day along with all flesh shall be raised right so, in, in, as with Christ, so with you and me, a resurrection awaits now, new hope, forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation. So, Ash Wednesday is a both-and. It's a law and gospel thing, okay? You can also get the ashes on your hand if you want, um, but, you know, um, typically the, the uh, ashes are made from the Palm Sunday branches from the year before. Um, normally what I do is we, we keep them in a bag, and then I get a big aluminum pan and I put it on the grill, and I get one of my uh, favorite, I get two fingers of my favorite bourbon, and I get my blowtorch, and, and, then, and then I burn the, uh, the palm fronds on my grill while I'm enjoying my favorite bourbon. So just so you know, that's, you know, and if you want to come join me for the burning of the palm fronds, you're more than welcome to do that. So normally I do that kind of a few days before, Uh, or like Sunday, okay? Uh, So about quarter till 6.45, we'll start offering the ashes on Wednesday and then hopefully be done by 7 o'clock, 7.05. We'll have divine service that evening, which is totally appropriate in keeping with tradition and focusing on death, yet there is life, and that'll begin our Latin season. Any questions about that? I wanted to make sure I addressed that. So go home, wipe the ashes off, smile, you've been redeemed. You know, we don't do them for outward show. Um, you know, so it's just one of these great little symbolism things that teaches us. And and again, as you've heard from me, if it doesn't teach, and if it's for outward show, then uh, I'm not a big fan of that. But anyway, you can throw stuff at me if you want. All right, anything else? Okay, Pastor Grady, is he in here yet? Nope, I don't see him. Okay, well, let's go ahead and get started. How many of you have the book again? It's okay if you don't, I just kind of want to be mindful of... So there's about maybe a quarter of you that kind of have it and are reading through it. Uh, so I want to give the rest of you that, that don't, I kind of want to give you the benefit of, of hearing at least some of what uh, Dr. Marquart writes. So before we begin, the Lord be with you. Let us pray. O oh Lord, mercifully hear our prayers, and having set us free from the bonds of our sins, deliver us from every evil. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. For those of you that have the book, uh, we're going to pick up on page 14 and uh, try and rock and roll here through the rest of it as much as we can. So I, last week, we kind of ended right before this, Scripture and Tradition. On June 25th, 1530, the Lutheran party formally presented its confession of faith to Emperor Charles V and the estates of the Holy Roman Empire assembled in Augsburg. The impact of this confession, even on its opponents, was enormous, or ginormous. What had been expected was a fanatical tirade against all established order and tradition, sacred and secular. So, the Romanists fully expected that these crazy Germans, these crazy Lutherans were going to show up and it was going to be just this brawl, right? I mean, just this like a a big UFC, WWE, SmackDown kind of fight. It wasn't going to be orderly, it wasn't going to be polished. It wasn't going to be academic, and they found out it was exactly opposite of that. Instead, the assembly heard calm, respectful explanations of basic Christian truths, evangelical and biblical in content and tone, and spiked with appeals to great theologians of the past, like Saints Ambrose, Augustine, and John Chrysostom. Okay, Just a reminder for you, when you're talking with people from other faiths. Uh, when you have a sticky wicket issue amongst your family, friends, or co-workers, stay calm. <laughs> okay, relax. Don't get sucked into an emotional, you know, tirade. I've fallen into that trap before, um, not just with people, but I've been sucked into that with other pastors, where we might disagree on something, and you end up saying something you're going to regret, or acting in just a very unchristian manner, right? Uh, and yes, you know, there have been fights at pastor circuit meetings before. Not very often, um, you know, but uh, normally it doesn't come to blows, does it, Pastor Ullman, but not usually. <laughs> so, you know, be calm and cool and collected. And, and I love that our forefathers, when they were presenting this, they did it in a very orderly manner. And so, you know, be very orderly about it. Arm yourself with Scripture and truths, uh, and be patient, and and note the the Holy Spirit has your back. Okay, let's move on. Prince William of Bavaria turned to Dr. John Eck, Luther's leading academic critic, and complained that Eck had misrepresented the Lutheran doctrine to him, right? This is great. Then William asked whether Eck could refute the confession they had just, just heard. When Eck replied that he could do so from the church fathers... You might want to write off in your book maybe tradition in some respects, but not from the Scriptures. The prince made his famous comment, quote, and let's read it together. Then the Lutherans, I understand, sit in the Scriptures, and we of the Pope's church beside the Scriptures. Hang on to that thought or that image, right, of of, of sitting in the Scriptures as opposed to sitting Beside it. Okay? So here, here's, a, here's a quote for you to think about. It was clear that a number of notions and practices which had become customary by Luther's time had no support at all in the Bible. Among them were prayers to the saints, prayers for the dead, purgatory, indulgences, the sacrifice of the Mass, and the like. And those who wished, nevertheless, to defend such things had to do so on other grounds, right? So where where Scripture speaks very clearly, we should always listen and be very conservative, okay? Where Scripture does not speak, we have freedom, okay? And we'll talk a little bit about the term adiaphora as well, meaning that which is not ordained or that which is uh, not given, okay? So the following notion of tradition was devised for this purpose. St. John himself said that he did not write down everything Jesus had said and done, These unwritten things are passed down from generation to generation as by an underground stream and surface here and there in statements by this or that theologian, pope, or council. So keep in mind, as I mentioned before, the disciples, the 12, they had their own disciples, right? That were under them. So they had men then that they ordained all through the church itself. uh, And so they were privy to a lot of things. So we read and we were taught at the seminary to read the church fathers, Okay? But not to read them as if they were the Word of God itself, but additional, kind of like a flashlight shining in a corner, a little bit of additional information may be cast upon this. Okay? Uh, but never given that rule of Scripture. Remember, Scripture is our one rule, norm, and source. Okay? Scripture is the one judge above all other judge. Okay? So you might have heard somebody say, Well, well don't judge me! Right, you know, you talk to your brother or sister that's caught in sin, and they're like, "Well, you're not supposed to judge me," and you're like, God's word judges you. You see that? Because we are called as brothers and sisters. When we see our brother or sister caught in sin, what are we supposed to do? Oh, don't judge them. Run away. Run away. That's not what Jesus says, does it? Go and talk to your brother or sister privately. Okay. Um, hey, I notice that whatever fill in the blank. That you've been struggling with this. Okay? It could be any number of things. We're not gonna get into that, but you know what that is with your brother and sister. Go talk with them privately. Okay? And by showing them their sin, and how do we know what sin is? Not your opinion, but from where? From Scripture. You see that? That's not judging. So some people say, well, judge not, lest ye be judged. That's talking about once for all, eternal, who's gonna be damned, who's gonna go to hell. And it always comes down to this is what Scripture says, okay? So we do, we do speak the truth, and you should care for your brother and sister in Christ. Do it in a very calm, cool, collected way. Don't be angry. Don't be malicious, right? Don't stick your nose up in the air and, well, hey, look at me. I got my life all figured out, and you, you suck, or whatever. Don't, don't do that, okay? Speak God's Word. Be loving, because the goal is always to, to bring them back to it, okay? I got a little out of sorts there, sorry. (laughs) So, um, such a scheme becomes, of course, a Pandora's box. From it, the weirdest fantasies can be conjured up at will and have been. And what is overlooked here is the import of the evangelist's comment, but these are written that you may believe. So whatever is not so written then on apostolic authority is not worthy of belief, When ancient heretics appealed to a secret doctrine on the basis of St. John 16, 12, which is where John uh, writes, or Jesus says, I have much more to say to you, St. Augustine replied, since the evangelist kept silence, who among us can say that it was this or that? Or if he dares to say it, how will he prove it? Who is so boastful and rash as to affirm without divine testimony what are the things which the Holy Spirit did not want to write through the evangelist? Okay? So jump on down to the next paragraph at the bottom of the page. The New Testament word, from which we get our word tradition, and that comes uh, 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 via the Latin. Tradition simply means passing on or handing over. It is used, for example, of surrendering, turning over, or even betraying people. So it's got a few different meanings. So Mark 1:14, Mark 3:19 that of committing or commending oneself to God, Acts 14 and Acts 15, or of giving up one's soul in death, John 19. In the Gospels, the noun form of the word for tradition is used only in a bad sense, that is, as human customs and oppositions to God's word. You might want to highlight or underline, it's kind of interesting, okay? So that's not the only definition we have, but in the Gospels itself, it's, it's only used in a bad sense in opposition to God's word, so this the Savior rebukes, citing the prophet Isaiah, and let's read Matthew 15, 9 together. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Okay, next page. In the verb form, however, the word is used also in a good sense. So as a verb, now, there is good. And in Matthew eleven twenty seven, 27, all things have been committed to me by my Father... St. Luke 1 to 1 to 2, or many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. So here we have tradition at its best. We have God-given truth. It is handed uh, down uh, unchanged, certified as such by apostolic prophetic authority. And it's this sense now that St. Paul insists on the exclusive sway of, quote, the teachings we passed on to you, 2 Thessalonians 2, or 2, Th- 2 Thessalonians 3, the teaching you receive from us. The Corinthians are praised for holding to the traditions just as I passed them on to you, 1 Corinthians 11. Now, this is very interesting. So, Scripture doesn't go into a great detail about all of these traditions, but we know that there are things that were taught by the apostles themselves to the disciples. And they're referenced there in Scripture. Paul especially pays great attention to this. Okay, um, And so, you know, when he talks to Timothy, he talks especially, and this is a, a phrase that is quoted throughout our Lutheran confessions a pattern of sound doctrine, a pattern. So those of you that do any type of sewing or if you've done any type of fabricating in the shop with metal, you might make a pattern from which you cut something out or you, you know, trace it because you want to make the same thing you know, more than once. And so there's a pattern for us. And that's how the church talks also about why we worship the way we do. There's patterns you know, to our worship. That's part of the liturgy. There's patterns of how we teach which is why you know, we still use Luther's you know, catechism, small catechism. Uh, we use the six chief parts uh, to teach that. Okay? We have the five great pillars in the divine service. Now, they might come in some various musical fashions. They might be sung. They might be spoken. Um, you know, and, and there's certainly other things, but there are patterns that have been passed down and, and the church continues, and that's, that's very important. Okay? Any questions or comments on that before we move on? You've been such an attentive bunt the past couple of weeks. Pastor Grady and I were talking about how to get you to ask more questions. And Monty said I should just be quiet for like a minute or two and see if you have any questions. <laughs> yeah, that did work, Monty. Okay. <laughs> you know, if you can't laugh, I mean, what's life like, right? So these traditions are not a secret lore about fancy obscurities, Marquardt continues. They are the publicly proclaimed law and gospel of God. So first and foremost, you know, Marquardt takes it right where it needs to go. Scripture is two things, law and gospel, right? And and it's just beautiful when you start to grasp some of that and you start to read that. So what Paul received and in turn passed on unchanged is core content like the Holy Supper, And that was a big one for Paul, big emphasis on uh, the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 11, also the saving death and resurrection of Jesus, 1 Corinthians 15, okay? Early service people, you heard that this morning as well, and that's really what the love is all about. Late service people, just wait for it, you'll get there. Um, So, beside this bedrock of God-given apostolic doctrine, Scripture also documents apostolic customs or practices, such as observing Sunday as the day of the Lord's resurrection. That's a good one. You know, for for new Christians, I've had a lot of people ask me, why do we have church on Sunday? Well, one, there's a pattern for that within Christianity in general. One of the first things that the early Christians started doing was gathering together in His name, following a pattern of sound doctrine, using the liturgy. So they had service of the Word, they had service of the sacrament, very similar to what we do. Okay, may not have had all the pieces of the puzzle that, you know, because we've acquired things over the years, and we've changed things and and that sort of thing, but very similar. Um, And they started doing that on Sunday, because Sunday was the day that, it was the Lord's Day. That was the day Jesus triumphed, you know, over the grave and His resurrection. Okay? Um, and so, even you know, as elders, some of the elders here, we've we've talked. I mean, in the past, we've had services on different time, and and, and don't worry, we're still going to do the Saturday service, you know, for the Indy five hundred, uh, you know, that sort of thing. That way, you can get started early Sunday morning with your bloody Marys and not worried about showing up to church and pastor wondering why your eyes are glazed over. You know, and we've done you know Saturday a few times during the summer, and, and you know we're looking at that stuff now. the, the big thing is this. You know, I think still today for us, and and in some respects, our culture doesn't get this, and because our culture has become more non-Christian or un-Christian, you know, we've ceased to kind of set aside Sunday as whose day? The Lord's Day. It's not that you still can't go, you know, have Sunday be a family day, but but you have to understand for almost 2,000 years, Christians have always said, we're going to take one day out of the week, one day. And not only that, really only part of the day right? Um, and, and we're going to devote that to the Most High God. You know, you think of the time that we spend, and I'm not going to launch into the typical, you know, pastor's upset because not everybody comes to church as often, which is really, really easy to do. Uh, and Pastor Ullman had years of that, so we don't want to get him riled up about it either. Um, you know, but it's, it's one day out of the week, you know, and two to three hours, I mean, look at how much you know, time you spend binging on you know, a Netflix show or, or, or doing something else. That's for the younger crowds, older people. Netflix, what's that? Uh, but, you know, it's just, yeah. So I think we can do it. And so just to remind people of that and to teach the importance of it, to follow that pattern. Um, and yeah, we're going to look a little silly to the world around us. But you know what? Um, that's part of being a Christian. Okay. Okay, uh, so beside this bedrock of God-given apostolic uh, doctrine, Scripture also documents apostolic customs or practices, such as observing Sundays as the day of the Lord's resurrection, or the right of laying on of hands when ordaining men into the public ministry of the gospel. Here, too, is tradition, but without divine mandate. So the laying on of hands, we don't, even our confessions, you don't have to lay hands on a guy to make him a pastor, Okay. That's part of a a custom that has been passed on down. A pastor now becomes a pastor when what happens? When? When he's ordained, which means what? The church as a whole has said what? This guy uh, is, you know, go through the whole requirements in Timothy. He's apt to teach. You know, he's, he's not a lover of money, he's not quarrelsome, you know, husband of but one wife. So he fulfills all these qualifications. He's had, had training, he's had instruction. You know exactly how much? Well, you know, we know the disciples had about three years. The Apostle Paul had about three years. That's why our seminaries, for the most part, are three years of education and one year in the field. So four years. Uh, can you do it in less than that? Sure you can. Um, does it take some guys longer? Yeah. I would have loved to have stayed on Vicarage another year or two, I'll be honest with you, because I, I, I recognized how much I didn't have to know, and I actually requested that. I said, hey, can, can we stay in Lincoln, Nebraska for another year? Because I'm learning so much, and, I, and we, love, we love being there. We really enjoyed it, except my wife is like, no, we really need to graduate seminary so you can get a real paycheck, and <laughs> <laughs> we can find out where we're going to be, you know, so, but okay, anyway. So, um, so, so laying on of hands, good tradition, and we retain it, right? There's something you should know as well. There are some pastors when a new pastor is installed, and you may not have noticed this. I'd have to go back. Eh, we didn't take video of it. When a new pastor is so he's already been ordained. He gets a call somewhere. There's some pastors who won't lay hands on the new pastor because they're like, he's already had hands laid on him, Right? And there's other pastors who are like, yeah, laying on of hands. I mean, the elders are called to go anoint the sick and do that. You know, so I kind of see both sides of the issue. You know, so I don't know. It kind of depends on how I feel that day, whether I lay my hand on his head, if he's newly installed or not. But we always speak the word of Scripture either way. Okay? So just know that there's different things that are traditions and customs in the church that probably aren't ordained or required in Holy Scripture. Okay? Uh, The only last thing I'll say on the laying on of hands, um, and and this is where uh, uh, I'd love to have a conversation with Marquardt about this. You know, Paul writes, you know, fan into the flame the gift of the Holy Spirit that was given to you through the laying on of hands. That to me sounds a little bit more like the laying on of hands is not just tradition, that it's scriptural in that sense. Does that make sense? So I'd love to, you know, he's in heaven, so I'll have to ask some of the other professors about that. Any thoughts on any of that? It's not not really that big of a deal, but, you know, you get these little things with what does Scripture say, what's tradition, you know, what do we have to do, what are we free not to do or do, and that sort of thing. And so just so you know, sometimes there's a little bit of, you know, good question about that. Okay, I'm being quiet again to see if anybody has a question. Where's Monty at? Yeah, here, oh yeah, all right. Um, how does apostolic succession? Ooh, ooh, that's a big one. That's a good one. Yeah, so the Orthodox ch- Church, I mean, technically the Roman Church still practices this as well, so apostolic su- succession, so every ordination now uh, can be traced back by someone who was ordained, 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 ordained by Peter, Right? So you've just got this constant uh, connection all the way back, and maybe not even Peter, but at least the Apostle. Eventually, for the Roman Church, it's gotta go back to Peter. So Apostolic Secession that, um, you know, it's kind of, you ever played the, some of the younger folks probably won't even know who this is, his name is Kevin Bacon, he's an actor. And so uh, we used to play this game in college called Seven Degrees of Kevin Bacon. And so you would name a movie you know, with someone in it, you know, and then you would connect that to another movie or a show that had, eventually you would find a connection to Kevin Bacon. And the premise was you could find any movie and make a connection to Kevin Bacon, right? And it sounds kind of silly, you know, so it might have been a drinking game, I don't remember much about my (laughs) college years. But um, so apostolic succession, think of it that way, you have to make a connection in some sense. Now, where does that place the power and authority or the ecstasy in the Didymus? In the what? Right. So in the connection of, you know, the person who is ordaining or their heritage. As opposed to the power and authority line where? In the word of God. Okay, and then I would also add to that because scripture does, the church. Right? So the church calls, ordains, and can do that. Okay, but the, but, but the word now ultimately, so the Holy Spirit is placing a man into the office through the church, right? I mean, that's, that's how he worked, you know, for you through the call process. That's how, you know, I'm called to believe it and look at it as well. Um, so, so it really comes down to where is the power and authority? Okay, and so the reformers said it's simply in the word first and foremost. Okay, now the church exercises that word But it's not the church first and foremost. And that's where they would put the cart before the horse. Okay? Good question. Yes, ma'am? This isn't in the book, but I think it was in your um, monthly newsletter. But kind of going along with tradition, we have divine mandate. Could you speak just a little bit about getting something up for Lent and fasting? So, fasting. One, open your catechism and read about fasting because Luther talks about it. So uh, fasting, uh, very common uh, in the Old Testament. And I would say fasting is good for two reasons that you'll learn from Scripture. Number one, fasting is actually good for you physically and medically speaking. So talk to your physician or doctor about that as well. Um, And there's some new research that's come out on that as well. My sister, who's a doctor down in Texas, uh, has been talking to me about that. Uh, and she, she kind of practices that throughout the week in various ways. Um, and I'm not even going to dive into it because I don't understand it. For me, it's just she's taking food away from me, and I don't like that. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, but she goes on about some of the medical side of it. So, I mean, God cared for his people in many and various ways. And so even some of the things that he put in place was for their benefit, for their bodies, and physically speaking, okay? Now, secondly, fasting um, was also designed uh, to focus you on what it was you either needed to be doing or should be doing or what God was doing to focus you in on something, okay? Um, And so we have fasting all through both the Old and the New Testament. And probably the easiest way to point you to, what did Jesus do? What did he do? What's the first thing that he did? He went and fasted in the desert. Immediately after his baptism, where does he go? Okay, 40 days. Scripture is very clear on this. Okay, 40 days. Now, some of our historical critics would say, aha, yeah, somebody got that wrong. 40 days without food and water. One is Jesus. He's God. Um, so he fulfills all the fasting in the past because God did require fasting in the Old Testament. So you're not required now under law to do that. So if you talk about some of the ceremonial law that was required, there was also uh, civil law in the sense that God required certain nations to do that, uh, all fulfilled by Jesus. So do you have to fast now? No, you do not. Is there good reason for you to fast? Yeah, might be. That's for you to figure out what you might like to do. And so part of the tradition, you know, in the church, and I can't give you the dates on this, I have to go look in a couple of books in my office of when it developed, people would give something up during the how many days of Lent? Forty days of Lent. See that? So now there's a connection here, we're going to focus a little bit more on what Jesus is doing and has done for us. And so to do that, perhaps we're going to give up something that we tend to think a lot about, okay? Okay. Um, I, I've done it before. I don't know if I'm going to do it this year. I haven't decided yet. I kind of flip-flop on it. And some years I do really good, you know, and other years I get two weeks in and I'm like, I'm done with this. You know, <laughs> I'm not a perfect guy, you know. I, yeah, I mean, that's that's, that's that's up to you, but don't, I mean, don't, don't carry guilt and burden abound with that, right? So if you're really beating yourself over the head with the fasting thing and it's really dragging you down, then I, I'd say don't do it. <laughs> I mean, but, but good practice to kind of focus in. Yeah, it's part of discipline. So, you know, and we all need discipline in our life in some way, shape, or form. So, okay. And my wife reminds me of that quite often, so I need to be a little better on some of that. Okay. Enough about that or she'll get up and start talking to you. Um, <laughs> any other questions that kind of answer it? Yeah. So well, I, on I told Monty if I did this, we would get off on tangents. <laughs> And he said, Pastor, you already get off on tangents. So I, I, he's not here today. I can't pick on him. Sorry. Yeah. I, I like a good fish fry. I don't know what to say. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, you know. So okay. So the concept of, of eating meat on Friday. There, there's a couple of of simple things. One. What what day did Jesus die? What day was he on the cross? It was on Friday. So the Pope actually, and I can't remember. Now, this, is, this has changed a little bit, but, but there was actually um, a, a papal—oh, shoot, not just a bull. Um, I wish my mind was like Marquardt. He would remember all this. But the pope actually decreed uh, that, that you would not eat meat at all. For a while, it was actually during the whole 40 days. You couldn't, you couldn't eat any meat during the 40 days. And then, if memory serves me, it went to just on Fridays— and so that's where the whole fish thing came out, right? And that's still affected. Watch the commercials on TV. I mean, Burger King, you know, they're, they're all running commercials for fish now. And it'll, it'll start now this week if it hasn't already, if you haven't noticed it. And um, hey, go have a fish sandwich. You know, so you know, Good Friday, <laughs> we always had a Traore service at noon, which all the other churches would participate in. So it would be uh, the, the seven last words of Jesus and each pastor would preach a short homily on that. And that would go from 12 to 1.30 or so. And then we'd take our boys. They'd be off school. We'd always go to McDonald's and we'd get, you know, double quarter pounders. We did as much meat as we could <laughs> because we were Lutherans. <laughs> and, 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 you know, so, um, but, but, you know, I, I think that in some respects, the intent was good. The bad part is making it a law. And so now you're making people feel guilty if they don't eat, you know, fish on Friday or if they eat meat because that's not from Scripture, right? So it's good to have discipline and encourage people to do that. So we encourage you to fast. You know, I encourage you to use ashes on Ash Wednesday, but should you feel bad if you don't? No, it's not a law, right? And so it's kind of that paradox that gets some people miffed with us as Lutherans. Because we're kind of like, you know, here's some good stuff to do, but at the same time, you're free to not have to do that. And so some people gravitate towards, I need somebody to tell me what to do, right? You know, but, but you don't want to take that too far in terms of forgiveness. Anybody else want to add anything on that? We've got some more recovering Roman Catholics in here. But it's connected to the body of Jesus more often than not. So we're going to refrain from meat and flesh. Um, and and that's, that's probably the simplest way. Pastor Allman, you want to add anything on that? Is that... Okay. It's interesting that Jesus Sermon on the Mount kind of assumes that the disciples will be fasting. It's it's lined up within when you pray and when you fast. Yeah. I I think you're right in saying it shouldn't be a wall. Right. At the same time. As Luther says it's a fine hour training. Absolutely. Yeah. So a good thing to do and and a good thing to think about. Okay. Uh, make sure you do it. I mean, the right way, and that's why we would also encourage people. You know, you, you know, talk to your doctor if you're going to make some big, big changes yeah. to your diet. You know, you don't want to, you don't want to be uh, hurt your body in terms of fasting yeah. a certain way. Don't give up water, by the way. Don't do that one. That's not good. Okay. And any other, anything else? Good questions. Okay. So let's see where we're at. Uh, we. Uh, So here, too, is tradition, but without divine mandate. Then there are the churchly customs of later times, gradually shaping the liturgy. So so the liturgy has kind of developed over the years through the church. So what's the liturgy? I would say to you, it's what the church has decided. You might say, what has the church decided? I'd say, look in your hymnal. That's why even as Missouri Synod Lutherans, we've adopted the hymnal in convention. All the other, you know contemporary and various you know forms that you might see other churches using i would suggest to you that's an abuse of freedom because we have we have agreed together this is how we're going to do that this is how we're going to discipline ourselves and we're going to now even within that there's some various traditions and customs you know a few people asked me when we started using divine service setting three and they heard me sing the lord's Prayer. And I say, whoa, ho, 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 you're taking the Lord's Prayer away from the rest of us. Now, now I could absolutely see how you would see that if you hadn't heard that done before. Okay? But here's a simple explanation for it. Who gives the Lord's Prayer? Jesus. Who does he give it to? The apostles. And who are the apostles to give it to? The church. So in Divine Service Setting 3, and it's the only one of the five services that actually suggests this during the rubrics, so when you hear the pastor singing the Lord's Prayer, here's how you need to understand it. Jesus is teaching you how to pray. You got that? Jesus, through the pastor, is giving you and teaching you how to pray through the Lord's Prayer. And now having received that, you go forth on a daily basis and you say and pray the Lord's Prayer. How many times didn't we cover that early on? Like a minimum of seven times a day is what Luther recommends it. You got it? And so that's part of the tradition of Divine Service 3 is the pastor, Jesus through the pastor is teaching the Lord's Prayer. Okay, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven, right? So uh, the, the singing slows it down, allows more time for meditation, needs to be clear. Luther actually encouraged the pastors to sing the Lord's Prayer slowly. You may not know that. He encouraged them to do that in the Mass, in the Divine Service, to teach it. Okay, so that's kind of where that tradition comes from. We obviously don't do it at every divine service, right? So So brought up and that What part of the country did you grow up in? Fort Wayne. Okay, so oh, so Indiana. Okay. You know surprised, I was like, whoa. Right. So some churches that, that, that have pastors that, that probably shouldn't sing, um <laughs> Don't do as much singing, maybe, between the pastors and the congregation. And that's okay, right? So, so it's not a, you know... Whereas The funny thing, you know, so you go to Fort Wayne. I mean, there's churches in Fort Wayne who, for years, you go and you'll hear everything sung. You'll hear the gospel. Jesus walked with his disciples to Jericho. And there, you know, and so, I mean, you'll hear a lot more sung than what we do. Or, to be honest with you, what I'm even comfortable doing. I mean, just with my voice, and for other reasons. So, And that's why I asked kind of where it was at, because it's funny how you have different pockets and traditions that have latched onto it. And some of it is, you know, with your pastor, your under shepherd, you're gonna get what he's learned and been exposed to, sometimes whether you like it or not. Um, I've always tried to say, okay, here are the things I've learned to share some of that with you. Sometimes it sticks. It's kind of like when I was in seventh grade and we would, you know, put spit wads on the wall and some would stick and some wouldn't. Um, That's a really bad example. Um, Really bad example. That's why we have adults in here, not young kids. So you have these, so you, you, you teach some of these different things and sometimes it might become a tradition or a custom where you're at, sometimes it won't, right? I love incense. I absolutely love it. I would love to have it on Sunday morning and other times during the year, because I love the biblical connection to incense that was always there in the tabernacle and the temple, okay? I also love the smell of it. You know, I'd be fine with just sticking a cigar and letting that waft, that would smell good too. <laughs> now, that's not for everybody though. And there are also people that are allergic to it. They do make some stuff that's non-allergenic, you know, but, you know we tried that, the church where I was at, the kids had seen some of that at some of the youth conferences, and so we kind of used it, and the rest of the congregation, they didn't like it at all. You know, that's okay. We didn't do it. Did we do it? No. It's not a big deal. I and mean, it's not not a hill I'm gonna die on as a pastor because it's not prescribed that you have to have it. But know that there are some churches that do that. So don't be surprised if you go to visit in the same way there's churches who might do more chanting and singing, right? And so that's why you'll see as we go through the church year, we'll vary it up. So now we, we are saying farewell to Alleluia's. Pay attention to our beautiful last hymn that we have today at the end of the service. We, we pack Alleluia's away. Starting next Sunday, no Alleluia's until Easter. Okay? And matter of fact, we won't even sing and chant anything as pastors. And the only thing we'll sing as a congregation will be the hymns and the pillars of the service such as like the Agnus Dei or the Nunc, Um, but everything else, even the intro, we'll just speak it. We will refrain from using the higher form of our voice to make sure that, or or to teach that Lenten is kind of a penitential time, right? Um, So, and then on Easter Sunday, hallelujah, hallelujah, right? I mean, we'll belt it out, the brass, I mean, he's risen, he's risen indeed, and all sorts of good stuff, yeah, Okay. So we'll kind of just vary that up. So even through the year, you'll, you'll see. Uh, I, I like to switch things up a little bit that way. OK, enough about anything else? OK, we're getting really far into Marquardt book. This is great. Okay, so all this the Reformation kept, except for those elements like prayers to the saints, which clearly ran contrary to the apostolic doctrine. So ceremonies, argues Luther in his wide-ranging on the councils in the church, belong not in great church councils, which must deal with more important matters, but in local parishes and schools. And that would be a good one to highlight. So ceremonies belong in parishes and schools. So what are the things that we're going to use that we're going to teach? And again, some of it might be like a, a spitwad on the wall. It might stick and it might not. But, but And how are you going to use it? How is that going to be a good thing? So when the school children learn to doff their little hats or bend their knees whenever the name of Jesus Christ is mentioned, or to kneel when the schoolmaster signals with his cane at the words, and was made man in the Nicene Creed, then the rest of the people will soon follow suit. So for preschool chapels, uh, you know, as I've been doing chapels, the kids have noticed something a little different, and I, I didn't realize it was different. But I'd have them stand up, and we sing the, the, uh, the versicles, the, in, the introductory part of Matins. But before we do that, I say, please stand. And I say, let's say God's name together. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And some of those little rascals are actually paying attention. <laughs> and they're not just hearing God's name. They're seeing me make the sign of the cross. Now, now I, I haven't told them they have to do this. I haven't, it's just part of my personal piety. Again, you're free in the gospel. You don't have to make signs. It doesn't do anything. You got it? It doesn't bring the archangel Michael to be there with you to fight evil, you know, and keep you free from vampires and, and dragons and zombies and whatever. Okay? Uh, it's a matter of personal pride to remind you at your baptism. And so some of the preschoolers ask some of our teachers, what's that pastor is doing? Or teacher, we see you doing that from time to time. So, one of the classes after chapel this week, the teacher came up and said, Hey, Pastor, could you simply teach the kids what you do? And he was, Sure, you know. But I also made sure to tell them, You know, you don't have to do this, but this is how I do it and this is why. And I just went through a simple explanation of it, right? So sometimes it sticks. So, we've talked about that before bowing in church. Don't feel bad if you see your neighbor next to you making the sign of the cross or, the, or bowing. You're, you're free. Do what, you, what fits best with your personal piety, but also understand that there are other things that people do that for them are part of, 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 of their faith, and they have great meaning to it, right? So when the processional cross comes by, you'll see me bow. Not everybody bows. Are you being a s- sinful and wrong if you don't bow? No. And if you think you should bow, otherwise you'll be sinful, then you need to come talk to me. So We're going to have a little chat. You don't have to. Okay, Um, so these are all just different customs in the church that have developed, you know, uh, to teach or a matter of personal piety. Okay, any questions on that? So we should always be a little bit of a mixed bag. I don't want our church, I mean, here at Advent where we're all doing exactly the same thing all the time. Not everything. Because there's no way that we're all going to have the same. Do You see where I'm going with this? So in terms of the basics, you know, liturgy and stuff, you know, then we have that. Oh, yeah. Okay. Ooh, that's bright. Oh, yeah. Oh, you're going to spoil it for the late service people. It's okay. Go ahead. We can do it. We can do this. Go ahead. You already said it. It's out there. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, remember what the catechism teaches us. So in baptism, I mean, the water is just plain water, right? The water is just plain water. And then there's no baptism without what? Without the Word of God. So the Word makes it what it is. So, so late service people, when you come in, and, and I, well, my sermon will be shorter now at the late service, that's good. <laughs> um, before the service started, well, let me back up. So sometime this way, last week, and I thought it was Pastor Grady that asked me the question, but he told me that I'm off my meds, and <laughs> so it must have been somebody else. It could have been Chris Cole. I don't know. I'm not even going to throw names out there because it's been a busy week. Somebody asked me this question. You know, we have the baptismal font up at the front, and we like that. We like the way that teaches, you know, because you enter through your baptism into the presence of God. You live daily in your baptism, and that's, that's all part of what we want to teach. And they said, but why is the baptismal font empty? And my first response was, well, are we having a baptism? <laughs> and the person said, well, they said, we've seen some churches where they always keep water in their font. And I said, yeah, I've seen that too. I said, I've never done that. I mean, everywhere I've been as a pastor or a layperson, we've, everybody, every Lutheran church has a baptismal font somewhere, right? But normally it doesn't have water in it, unless it's got the little you know, fish tank bubbler thing to aerate it and keep it from getting all nasty. Um, or whatever, um, and he said, well, could we put water in our baptismal font? I said, sure, and I got to thinking about that, and, you know, I, I kind of I looked at it this way, should a baptismal font really ever be empty? It, you know, and this person made me really kind of just think about it, right? Um, and, you know, uh, and, and what would be, or is it possible to help people be reminded of their baptism? Because you'll see some people, and it's not just in the Roman church, uh, the Orthodox and many Lutherans, you'll see people touch the water uh, and, you know, touch their foreheads. They may or may not make the sign of the cross, but they'll do it to remind themselves what? Baptism, right? Uh, Luther says every time you take a shower, (laughs) every time you wash pots and kettles, any time you contact into water, you should remember your baptism. That's kind of interesting when you think about it that way. So, you know, Is there any reason why we couldn't put water in our baptismal font? Any reason? And you can touch it if you want. Matter of fact, you can also bring your little kids up there and do what? Play. (laughs) Play. Well, you can. Uh, uh, Is it St. John's in Wheaton, Illinois, has got a baptismal font that's down low, that's actually water comes down, and, and they encourage the kids to get in there and touch the water. You know, and mess with. It. I'm not sure how moms feel about that, especially on Easter Sunday with their nice clothes and shoes. But you know, that that's a very interesting point. I mean, because baptism is is a very you know earthly, physical thing, um, and so so I just said, you know what, I'm going to put water in it on Sunday. That kind of ties in because here's a reminder for you, right? So when you come up for communion, you can touch the water if you want. I don't care. Okay, don't spit in it, please. Um, you know or or drop your coffee in there but if you want to touch the water and and touch your forehead and remind yourself of your baptism you can do that if not not a big deal so that was a good question did that that kind of answer it any anybody who's like ooh, i don't like that at all you know it's kind of one of those things again where you know you can use it or not you don't have to so but good teaching good connection to the water okay all right anything else (laughs) <laughs> we got so far. Let me finish up, I got, I got, what do I have, a minute? If that. Let me finish this paragraph. So, um, okay, tradition then can mean many things. Some are good, some bad, some weighty, some not, right? So even touching the water, that's, you know, may, or may be a tradition in different places. Chemnitz distinguishes no fewer than eight classes of tradition. Chemnitz is quite a guy. I got a lot of his work on his desk. And this, woo really smart guy. His uh, masterful discussion answering the Roman Catholic Council on Trent. The point is that for what we believe and teach is God's truth, we must have his own warrant in his written word. And that's where we're conservative, where we, we enforce, we practice, that which God or Christ himself mandates. That's job number one. Beyond that, we gladly follow the good example of past ages, right? So we might have various forms of tradition, whether it's incense or whether we keep water in the font or or ashes on our forehead or whatever, provided that free Christian consciences are not enslaved by what God has neither commanded nor forbidden. Okay? And then he goes on, and I'll leave you with this quote, and I think this is a great quote. We modern Christians in particular have good reason to cherish the old churchly ways. Okay, um, Some of that I wasn't exposed to, um, you know, not all of it at the seminary, some of it came later, some of it came as we traveled around and lived in various places, some from you know, study of scripture and history, um, but... Uh, we have good reason for that, and I think a world that definitely is a little more disorderly and chaotic than it used to be 30 or 40 years ago, um, when we can show forth and practice some of that order and teach that God is a God of order, not of chaos, I think that's a wonderful blessed thing, okay, and, and take it all to Christ and his gifts. All right, anything else? Monty, they asked questions today. All right. <laughs> Good, good? Okay, let's stand and close with the Lord's Prayer. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Peace be with you. Also with you. Amen. Thank you.